to Distanced, a podcast about people around the world who are dealing with life in quarantine during the age of the coronavirus. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm recording from my home in San Mateo, California. Welcome to today's episode of Distanced. I hope you enjoyed our first episode with Austin Shepard from Shanghai. Um, today we have um, a very special guest, uh, Sumit Shah. Sumit is a doctor at Stanford University, and he is, um, you know, kind of a, a world-renowned expert in some ways. He would never say that himself on in his field, uh, which is treating cancer patients. And um, what he is going through right now at the university is you know, pretty interesting on multiple fronts, um, in some ways expected, in some ways unexpected. And so I say that because, um, you know, we all know that the Bay Area was at the forefront of many of the stay-at-home measures, um, you know, in, in the United States and is starting to see some effect of that potentially. And so I say that cautiously, optimistically. Um, he is, you know, not seeing things like being overwhelmed at the moment. In fact, it's quite the opposite, which may present its own set of problems. And that's something that we talk about today pretty extensively. And if you're curious about things like food delivery or <laughs> what's going to happen over the next, you know, several weeks or what happens if you do fall sick and what you should do, these are some of the subjects I talk about today with Sumith. Uh, I hope you enjoy today's episode. And without further ado, uh, hey, Smith, welcome. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a it's a pretty crazy time in the world right now. When it really say, is. Yeah, we have a uh, you know I, I'm doing all these interviews as phone interviews, and sometimes there's a there's a slight delay. I've warned the audience, but where are you calling from, and what's the situation where you are right now? Yeah, so I'm actually in my office in the hospital at Stanford University. Uh, I'm on service right now uh, on the inpatient setting. Uh, so I'm taking care of patients uh, who have cancer in the hospital. Um, so I'm a medical oncologist at Stanford. I focus on neurologic cancers, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, kidney and uh, testicular and prostate cancer. And uh, and uh, right now I'm treating all patients who kind of come in through the door uh, with a diagnosis of cancer and potentially uh, with coronavirus or without coronavirus, I take care of them regardless. But uh, yeah, it's been a very challenging time, uh, as we all know. And um, how long have you been, you know, doing what you're doing? How long have you been affiliated with Stanford? Any other just background information for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I went to medical school here at Stanford about 15 years ago now. Uh, did my training in internal medicine at, at uh, UCSF and then came back down for my fellowship training here at Stanford in, uh, in oncology and now on the faculty here where I spend about half my time taking care of patients, um, uh, doing clinical care, um, focusing on those cancers as I, as I discussed before. And then the other half of my time is spent either in administration or on research on uh, clinical trials uh, and digital health technology as well. So... Have you, in your career, seen anything even remotely like the situation that we're going through right now? Like even even just some analog that you can draw somehow? No, n- uh, nothing like this. And I, I don't know if anyone in modern history 
even in our for our peers that's seen anything like this. We were just discussing that probably the closest thing that we've seen in our generation, at least in healthcare, was the AIDS epidemic in the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, a lot of my mentors at UCSF, for instance, still talk about those days being on the Ward 5 out there, which is like this very famous ward that they have for HIV and AIDS. And this is before they even knew that HIV was causing AIDS. And they just saw people falling in front of them dying. And they had no idea what was causing this. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at in a lot of ways, although we understand that this is, you know, SARS uh, coronavirus. But uh, in terms of treatments and how we can actually help patients, we're still at the infancy in terms of what we can actually do. Uh, and we don't really know exactly what we can do in the future. Right now, it's just kind of the wild, wild west in terms of what, the, what kind of treatments we can offer patients. But it's just an incredible time and it, one that will change medicine and healthcare forever, if not the whole world. So it is an incredible time. And I was just talking to my resident team. I'm on the, the academic teaching institution. So I saw residents and fellows that I work with that this is almost a rare opportunity also to be see a leader. Uh, as we see now, a lot of the leaders that we have in healthcare right now were the leaders in the HIV epidemic uh, back in the early, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s. And so this is our generation's kind of uh, HIV epidemic, I think, right now for us. And this is something that we have never seen before. So I'm, I'm like most of the audience listening. I'm just a casual consumer of internet news and I consume too much and I don't have <laughs> the, uh, the medical knowledge. Uh, you and I text about this sometimes, but... Um, mm-hmm. To just um, ask some basic questions, you know, just put them out of the way. For instance, you know, of course, the flu comparison is drawn often, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And of course, we see, you know, I guess in worst seasons, you know, hundreds of thousands of people potentially die from flu a year. What's your best way to debunk the flu uh, situation aside from the the case fatality rate? Right. So I think there's two things. When we think about a, a virus, we think about two factors for the most part. One in a scientific term is called R0. And R0 or R0 is the transmissibility of the virus. So how infective uh, is this virus? So uh, R0 value of one, for instance, means that for every person who gets the virus, they spread it to one person. Um, uh, coronavirus has R0 of around two to three, which means that every person who gets coronavirus spreads it to two to three people. And this is why you get the exponential viral growth pattern that you see. Uh, in addition to that, the case fatality rate, uh, as you said, is higher. It's about you know anywhere from one to two point seven percent based on data that we have now. Probably lower if you probably look for cases that uh, were asymptomatic patients that we're not actually testing for. So the, the the denominator of the number of patients out there who are actually positive but that we don't know about is probably much higher. But either way, both those numbers of case fatality rate as well as are not are both higher for the uh, for coronavirus compared to the flu. But more important than all that is we don't have a vaccination for uh, coronavirus. And that's a big difference. And for, for the flu, you know, we have the large percentage of the, of the uh, country and the world really vaccinated for flu. Uh, and so you have, even if you don't get vaccinated, you have a concept of what we call herd immunity. So if you're the only one not vaccinated amongst the 100 people around you that are vaccinated, it's unlikely that you're going to develop the flu. However, that's not true where everyone is essentially completely naive to coronavirus. And so coronavirus can just run rampant through huge communities and take a lot of uh, collateral damage along the way. So it's very different from the flu in that we don't have natural antibodies against uh, this, uh, this, this virus. And that's going to cause a great deal of mortality 
uh, if we don't have herd immunity at some point. Now, are you seeing uh, more visits to the hospital that are a result of people, uh, paranoid is the wrong word, but suspicious that they have symptoms related to coronavirus, but they otherwise would not have shown up? How much of your, how much of, uh, you know, visits are, are sort of like that? Yeah, it's actually very fascinating, uh, Neil. It's, it's actually the complete opposite right now. <laughs> we are not seeing people come into the hospital, period. It's just very, very, very few. I was just walking in the uh, atrium today with a colleague and we were talking. And I literally felt that we were the only people in the entire building. It is so quiet in the hospital right now. Of course, this is very different in the Bay Area compared to other areas around the country, such as New York, which is in the middle of the, you know, the pandemic right now. But right now in the Bay Area, at least, it's incredibly quiet. So a lot of patients are taking their chances on the street, so to speak. They're, they're staying at home. So majority of even my patients, my cancer patients, don't want to come into the hospital because they don't want to risk the exposure to coronavirus. And two is with this no visitor policy, no one wants to stay at the hospital as it is anymore. They want to get home as soon as possible because it's been a very miserable experience, unfortunately, for a lot of these patients to be alone in the hospital uh, dealing with their condition. So a lot of people are not coming to the hospital. But that kind of begs the question, like what you were saying, is where are all these patients going, though? Because you would think that the incidence of acute pathology, such as heart attacks, strokes, you know, pneumonia, these kinds of things should not decrease in incidence during the epidemic, if anything, potentially increase. But if, if nothing else, it should stay the same. So the big question is, where are all those patients going? They're probably just staying home because they don't want to get the virus. But we, we really worry then that we're going to see a huge surge of patients with very, very serious complications of people who are sta- saving off their early signs of, this kinds of, of, of these kinds of diseases. Uh, coming in in maybe a few weeks at a much more serious point where it may be more difficult to actually treat those conditions. And we're starting to see actually what we call higher all-cause mortality in a lot of parts of the world where COVID is running rampant right now because I think a lot of people are dying from non-COVID-related illnesses because they don't want to be seen in the hospital. So it's, it's, I think right now, I think a lot of us are trying to almost essentially time the epidemic. So even for a lot of my uh, patients with cancer, I had been telling them it's okay to delay that scan or those labs by, uh, you know, a few weeks or a month, hoping that they would kind of uh, come on the other side of the surge from coronavirus. But now what we're seeing is that because of uh, the flattening of the curve that we're seeing, at least in the Bay Area, that surge may not come till later. So I'm worried that a lot of the folks who aren't coming to the hospital now eventually will have to present themselves to the hospital because they have, you know, in, in more acute extremists. And they'll be coinciding with the coronavirus surge as well. So you're going to have this potential terrible disaster. We're going to have a surge of patients with non-coronavirus coming in for acute issues like heart attacks and stroke and pneumonias and uh, heart failure exacerbations. And then you're going to have a surge of patients coming in for coronavirus, which I think could completely overwhelm the system. So, so let me uh, let me just again right? ask a dumb dumb guy non medical uh, you know yeah. question here, which is. Is it also possible that some of the decrease in visits have to do with things like um, fewer car accidents, fewer heart attacks related to exertion? Like what, is that a large portion of visits typically or is that not, or or just is the fact that people are staying at home just reducing that stuff and reducing their exposure to other stuff? Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it as well. Uh, And I also think that primary care is doing a great job too of saving off. I think there's also some percentage of patients 
that probably never needed to come in in the first place. And I think maybe this is one of the positives of coronavirus is, you know, how will healthcare change for the better after all this? Maybe we'll see that we can do a lot of this stuff without having to, you know, treat a lot of patients that we that we can do effectively without having to having to uh, bring them into the hospital. So I think there's a combination of, you know, certain patients who didn't need to come in in the first place, certain patients that we can treat a lot better, like uh, in the outpatient setting. Um, and then, yeah, you're exactly right. There are, there are certain patients who just by, uh, by, by nature of staying at home are probably staying a little bit healthier and engaging in less risky behavior um, or, you, you know, less car accidents and whatnot too. But um, I, I think combination of all of those. Now, you, you alluded to this earlier, but the, the regional differences. And so one thing that I'm doing for this podcast is just, you know, interviewing people from different cities around the world. And all we see is what we see in the media. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, and you know it feels horrifying right now what's going on in Europe. Of course, my sister lives yeah. there. And then, you know, we're going to mm-hmm. talk to people from Europe. I spoke to someone from China earlier. But why... Does the Bay, I mean, is the Bay really relatively calm? Like we're, we're I'm, everywhere else in the world feels like a, a train wreck quite, quite candidly. Right. Yeah. So I think we're going to see uh, a lot of heterogeneity in terms of uh, uh, the patterns of spread within communities. And if you look at the data, it's very much, uh, uh, unfortunately, it, 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 to be blunt, it's a, it's a political issue. Uh, I think if you look at the communities that did shelter in place very early on, uh, I think that you're going to see that there were, the transmission rates are a lot different in those communities. Uh, I think that there's, it's not just policy. I would say that we're very fortunate in the Bay Area that uh, our, our leadership here closed things down pretty early in the epidemic. We were one of the first, you know, um, uh, cities as well as even states to, to shut down. Uh, but we also have to be, you know, cognizant that we have a very fortunate uh, and relatively affluent community here that can shelter in place. Uh, this is, uh, not the same demographic as Chicago or New York, by any means. But we have a very large tech community that can take their laptops at home and program at home if they need to. Yeah, very uh, important point. Lots of information workers here. Yeah. Lots of people with, you know, exactly. Even so, even though we've seen a, a relatively small downturn, I mean, we just went through the greatest wealth creation period since the Renaissance in the <laughs> Bay Area. That, that's exactly right, Neil. And so. I mean, it's it just, I think we're very fortunate in that regard uh, here in the Bay Area that most people, uh, or many, I should say many people have the luxury of being able to uh, work from home, but that actually had a big impact in terms of just transmissibility as well. Uh, when tech shut, shut uh, you know, tech actually shut down in terms of work from home a lot, even a, I believe about at least a week, if not two weeks earlier than uh, shelter in place was uh, enforced. And I think that had a huge impact as well in terms of, uh, decreasing the infection rate um, and, and has really helped to contribute to a uh, flattening curve. We're starting to see the same thing in Seattle as well. Um, so, I mean, if you just look at the states and compare them in terms of the timeline of when they actually uh, enforce shelter at home and uh, stay at home versus not doing so, the, the results are quite dramatic, even for a difference of about six to seven days. Uh, and that's what it takes. I mean, I think this is why this epidemic was so difficult for so many people to see is that exponential growth happens incredibly quickly by definition of exponential growth. Uh, and I think a lot of people, it's just difficult to appreciate that fact because we tend to think of everything on a, on a linear scale. Uh, and and um, just the difference of six or seven days has had dramatic differences uh, in the prevalence of this uh, virus in communities. If you look at like Tennessee versus Kentucky, for instance, uh, 
where policy was just a matter of one week difference has made significant difference in terms of uh, of what this virus is doing to these communities. So, um, I, yeah, I'm really curious, you know, about the, you know, a couple, a couple things. So we hear the, the horror stories about how, how bad and how deadly uh, this thing can be. And I don't want to make the audience more paranoid about stuff, but <laughs> I'm hoping to ask you just what is actually a typical COVID case, not a, not an acute, but just what will peer, right. what will people go through uh, I'm not asking you, and audience, do not interpret anything uh, said on this podcast as medical advice. That is a disclaimer. Right. But um, right. just what what is a typical case, and what what do people do in those typical cases? Right. So I think the most important thing, Neil, is to, to keep in mind that the vast majority of people uh, are going to recover from this illness when they if they do get it, uh, and the vast majority of cases will be mild. So what that means is that it'll it'll be very much like a of a respiratory infection that you may have or a cold uh, that you've had before. So things like fever, uh, runny nose, uh, uh, sore throat, cough, uh, uh, hopefully not shortness of breath, but that could be a mild, you know, uh, I would say a more moderate symptom. But it's going to feel that sometimes muscle aches, but it's going to feel like you've had uh, a cold. I would say potentially more moderate symptoms would be like something like if you've ever had the flu before where you may get some what are called myalgias or muscle aches. Um, some people have described it as like a, just a really bad flu, um, and it takes a few days to get over it. Uh, there've been a few, uh, patients, uh, and, and, and some people who have talked about, uh, some kind of unusual symptoms as well. Um, maybe some unusual headaches or some patients who have, uh, difficulty smelling or difficulty tasting. Things just don't taste the same way as they did before. Uh, and then there are going to be a number of patients who are asymptomatic. You know, that, that's what we learned from that cruise ship that was off of San Francisco is that, you know, a, a fair number of those uh, of, of the people tested on the, on the cruise ship were positive uh, without any symptoms. Uh, but, uh, you know, the majority of those that at some point did develop symptoms, um, uh, but uh, at least 40% of those uh, patients who were actually positive never developed symptoms, though, so. Um, uh, it could be completely asymptomatic for some folks. Another, why? why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another, another thing I, uh, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt your answer there. Another thing no, as you no. say this, I just kind of think about is, you know, is it possible that, you know, there is some insanely large number of people in the Bay area and in other cities that have had it. And we just ha- will have yeah. no way of knowing, because that's something I often wonder, um, you know, we, you know, interact at a business setting all the time with people. I go to, you know, Warriors games, this and that just pre, and it just seems like, you know, this thing was, was spreading around the world late December and in January and and San Francisco is such an international hub. I mean, isn't it possible that it's much more pervasive and the ultimate fatality rate will be lower? What are your thoughts on that? A hundred percent, Neil. I think that this is the uh, $2 trillion question right now, right? What is the actual true prevalence? Of this virus, and truly, the only way to know that is through one mass testing. You know, if you look at places like South Korea and Hong Kong and others, they were able to do this. But what, uh, even more than that, to answer your question, is what we need is what was called sero- uh, serologic testing. So we're looking at antibodies to see if you've actually had the virus and have recovered from the virus, and potentially, uh, are you now immune to the virus? We don't quite have all those answers yet, but uh, there are being uh, test deployed uh, here soon uh, to help answer that question. You know, have you actually developed an antibody to the virus, which implies that 
you've uh, potentially had it in the past and have now recovered from it. Uh, and then two is what level of antibody actually confers immunity against the virus to say that you're actually uh, okay and, and not going to get the virus again. And, and what's your hypothesis Why, on on what those results will be? Do you think, just per, your personal opinion, that it will show that a lot of people have had it, or do you think it'll, you know, you know, sort of show that spread was limited? Yeah, no, I think a lot. It will certainly show that uh, you know a lot of people have had it in the sense that uh, a lot more than what we think right now. I would say that we estimate right now that community prevalence is around one or two percent in the Bay Area, and I think I would probably say that that's probably uh, going to be true. I, I don't think um, a, a lot of uh, more people um, than uh, what we expect right now have had it. I think it's probably been in circulation for about now maybe two months in circulation. Uh, and I think the measures that we've taken have helped kind of flatten that curve, so to speak. But I, I don't think we're going to be overwhelmed. And part of the reason why I say that is because, um, you know, we're doing testing right now on uh, patients who are even potentially symptomatic. So uh, uh, when, when patients come in and they have symptoms of fever and cough and we test them, our testing rates in terms of positivity rates right now at Stanford are around 5%. Um, so that means, you know, it's not going to be like 50% of the population has a coronavirus. Otherwise, you would see these in, uh, even for, uh, for, for a high pretest probability patient population. But for asymptomatic folks, if we start, you know, testing those patients, I imagine maybe up to 1%, uh, I would imagine. But that's just a guess. We don't have that data yet. But it's a very good question. What does testing actually do for us? Because we hear it thrown around a lot. And of course, we mm-hmm. want more information. And that completely makes sense. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it doesn't, does it change your course of treatment? No, not right now. I don't think so, at least. And like, what can we do armed with that information? Like, what is it? What does it help us do? I mean, I, I know that there's some probably economic implications. But for you as a doctor, yeah. what is more testing actually? What does it mean? Right. So I, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think it's a fair question because there's been a lot of debate about this. And, you know, in, in L.A. County, for instance, they stopped testing folks. They said, unless we're actually going to treat you differently, uh, there's no point of you knowing. So we might as well just go ahead and assume you have it, quarantine yourself, don't see anyone. And then 14 days after your last symptom, that's when you can kind of come back. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of this, the our epidemiological understanding of how this uh, virus is taking over communities, it would be much more helpful to know who's positive, who's negative. Uh, you know, in theory, if you had something that's like, you know, a, a, yeah, almost like a urine pregnancy test where you come into work every day and make sure that you can actually uh, go, to, go, go to work if you're negative, that would be much more uh, helpful. I think rapid testing, I think, is a potential game changer, um, especially for our healthcare providers. It could be very, very important um, to have a rapid test just because uh, if you don't have your, 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 your kind of, uh, uh, folks on the front lines there, I think we would kind of lose the war against this epidemic completely. So I think it would be very important for testing at the healthcare, but then also to drive policy and, 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 and understand where we are on the curve. Um, and are we actually flattening the curve or not? But you're right. I think a lot of it, uh, I, I personally think that the antibody testing is probably going to be even more important to us as we're looking to see. Uh, how we break out of this uh, uh, quarantining and stay-at-home uh, uh, orders that we have right now, and try to you know re-kickstart the economy at some point, and yeah, have people go back to work. But I think it'd be a combination of both, you know, point-of-care testing, uh, rapid tests that you can get in you know five to ten minutes, 
Uh, and then also the serologic testing with antibodies to determine if you've been infected in the past and whether you're now immune. Now, I want to draw this back to kind of personal experiences for people listening. And, um, you know, many of us have been quarantined now for, call it, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, a little bit longer, actually. I started a week earlier because I had a, a sinus infection. Who knows? Maybe it was COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, you know, what does it mean if you're sitting at home for, 21 days, you're doing your basics, you maybe you've grocery shopped, you maybe you've gotten some delivery and you have been, you know, knock on wood, asymptomatic. Like, what does that mean? And does that mean anything? (laughs) And, you know, does it mean you're, you know, theoretically safer to visit people, your parents, things like that? What, like, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and we don't know exactly, um, but I would say in general, so if the assumption is that you had the virus uh, and you contracted the virus at some point, but you've been quarantined for, for 14 days, if you've had the virus, I think, and it's run its course, there's a decent chance that you've now developed immunity. Uh, most of the studies that we're looking at for patients who actually do uh, develop immunity against this virus have shown that immunity, the, the, the certain antibodies that you, that you develop, uh, tend to happen in five to seven days after contracting the, the, the illness. Um, so it's possible that after about 14 days, you develop immunity such that you're no longer at risk for transmit, uh, transmitting the virus to others. So that's kind of where this 14-day uh, number kind of comes from, and that's why it's important. Um, but we, you know, that's not really based on a whole lot of solid science data, to be honest, um, but it's probably our, our best bet that after 14 days of contracting the virus, you're probably no longer at risk for transmission. Now, what would you also say to people, and when I say people, I'm referring to myself in some ways, who are, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just day-to-day life, like how risk-averse should we be? So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like limiting grocery shopping. I know CDC provides guidelines on this, but just cu- mm-hmm. you know, curious to hear your take, like food delivery, just things like that. I mean, is it the kind of thing where you would freak out about ordering DoorDash right now and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of discard packaging and wipe it down with Clorox and, you know, just go, you know, extensively and immediately take out the trash? Like right. how, you know, what's the, what's the right level of paranoia around right. just kind of stuff like that you would consider doing day to day? Right. So I think a lot of this depends on uh, who you are, first of all, in terms of your, your risk demographic. Uh, so if you had the, the answer for you was going to be a lot different from the answer for your, uh, for your grandmother, so to speak. Right. Uh, and we, uh, the same thing is, uh, it would be very different for the person who had a, a bone marrow transplant is immunosuppressed or a patient undergoing chemotherapy. So risk will be, need to be stratified by who you are in terms of how old you are and, and what your, what the likelihood is of you getting the virus. But more importantly, what's the likelihood of you having a severe complication? You know, for those of us, uh, you know, in our 30s or 40s, um, probably a pretty low likelihood that we'll have developed severe complications uh, from coronavirus. Very low likelihood. But, you know, we, we see case reports all the time, though. It's very frightening. Uh, but for, you know, our, our parents' generation, uh, it'll be, you know, much higher mortality rates. You know, the over 80 group, we're starting to see mortality rates up to 15%, which is just horrible. Uh, so I think a lot of this depends on, on, on who you are. But I would say in general, you know, for a lot of like the working tech community, uh, potentially listening to this podcast in the Bay Area. I would say that, you know, I, I would, um, 
certainly be mindful of everything that you're doing. But, you know, in general, I would say wearing a mask in public, I, I do advocate for that. But we don't have a whole lot of data to support one way or another. But we do see from countries that have done well with these types of epidemics in the past, uh, you know, largely in, in Asia, uh, that this can be helpful. We know that this virus is spread through uh, respiratory droplets that are uh, that, that can be emitted when you're coughing or sneezing or even talking. So I think it makes sense that if we had everyone in the community wear masks, it would actually help decrease transmission rates. So the mask itself is not to help you, so to speak, from contracting the virus. It's more about uh, uh, decreasing the probability that you're going to spread it. And so it kind of takes everyone to do that, to buy into that, to, to help uh, the, kind of the common good here. But I do think that that's very, uh, a good thing to do. In terms of, you know, getting DoorDash and, and, uh, and Uber Eats and Amazon Fresh and whatnot, um, I would try to advocate for that if we could. I think it's, um, uh, it, it would decrease, you know, public exposure in, in grocery stores and whatnot. Um, it's probably a good thing, too, for all the, you know, uh, the cash register folks uh, who are working really hard in the, in, the, uh, um, in the grocery stores right now to be uh, less exposed to a lot of people, too. I think just the, the, the more that we're staying at home, probably the better for everybody. Um, but uh, yeah, I think as, the more you can do in terms of getting delivery to your home, I think the better. Uh, but I, I personally don't wipe off everything from that I get from every Amazon box or every Uber Eats. I just don't think it's really feasible. Uh, it's, at some point, you're just going to have to live life. I also know that we're relatively young and healthy, so I'm a little bit more, um, I, I, I allow a little bit more risk in tolerations uh than, than others i guess yeah, yeah. there's no right mom. way it sounds like yeah yeah um yeah yeah and really you know uh, i mean you know other than just taking every precaution possible and i i hear that um yeah, yeah. but you know a uh, last medical question i have and then i have a couple of closing mm -hmm. questions one is sure. I, another term that is being used a lot by the media is you know people who are at risk and i want to understand that a little bit more because mm -hmm. you know there is stuff that you know makes people obviously at risk i'm sure your patients are all higher risk mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i've heard mm -hmm. things about you know ra and but what does immunocompromised mean like if you have a i don't know a slightly elevated blood pressure are you at risk like if you're an asthmatic are you at risk? like what define at risk yeah it's a good question to me i think at risk uh is not necessarily for the risk of contracting the illnesses, but the risk of developing a severe complication. And so far, what we know, uh, especially out of the experience in China and a few other places here in the United States, is that at risk is the largest one is, is age. So we see that mortality rate is uh, directly proportional to age. So as I said before, over 80 is like around 15%, over 60, I think it's still 67%, um, which is still very, very high. Uh, but then we also think about, you know, how intact your immune system is, as you said. Um, and so, you know, patients who are on chemotherapy, obviously, are going to be at higher risk. But for the average person, I think the other big risk factors would be diabetes. Um, uh, we know that can also uh, have more severe complications uh, with uh, coronavirus. We know that uh, asthmatics may, and I think the data is still a little bit early on this. Uh, we just know that this is a, is a virus that tends to attack the lungs very, very harshly. So if you do have compromised lungs, I think it probably is not in your advantage, obviously, to, to, to contract this virus. I would probably be a little bit more careful uh, than not. Um, but those are, I would say, the, the, the big things that we think about. You know, do you have uh, diabetes? Do you have heart disease? Um, do you have uh, uh, 
you know, the jury's still out about cancer and other, um, uh, or, and, and are you immunocompromising in, in any other way? But uh, by and large, I think age is probably the biggest one. And then I'm curious, just, you know, how are you personally holding up, right? And so it feels like probably, and uh, I'm, I'm interpreting, but I mean, is it the kind of thing where you're just waiting for uh, just a case wave any day now? Is it, how are you handling it psychologically? What's it like being on the quote unquote front lines of this, this war? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's been really challenging to know. It's been, it's been mentally exhausting to be quite honest with you. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I think we're doing okay in terms of a response, but, uh, uh, personally it's been pretty nerve wracking. I literally just turned on my, you know, my Twitter and my, my Instagram feed and, and I'm seeing, you know, news about a, a 30 or seven year old resident from, uh, uh, Detroit that was, uh, unfortunately a victim of this disease who was a resident and, uh, as an ENT surgeon, you know, and it's just completely frightening. He had, uh, uh, three kids and a wife and leaving all that behind and it's so tragic. And, you know, I'm married to another physician and, uh, probably the most alarming thing that I received was an email from my colleague, uh, saying that, Hey, it's me, you know, I, I know you and your wife are both physicians, uh, have just want to make sure that you guys have your will in order. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's not good. And, and to, to, to explain, uh, to people why, I mean, and I, I think I understand this, but I don't, maybe I don't understand the, the science behind it, but the reason you're so at risk is it seems like, you know, constant exposure to this particular virus yields a more potential lethal, you know, or severe outcome. Is that correct? Or am I? That's not? right. So we know that exactly. And there's a lot of just probability in terms of, uh, exposure risk. Just the fact that, you know, I can't stay at home. Um, and I, I, I like to think that I choose not to stay at home, uh, in order to, to do what I do, uh, to serve patients. But, uh, uh, it's, it's constant exposure to this virus and, uh, um, and, and potentially in high, uh, loads of, uh, a virus being, um, uh, transmitted through either coughing or sneezing, uh, or just being in the, in, the, in the presence of patients. Um, you know, just the other day, last week I was, swabbing a patient with this, uh, with the, who's suspected to have coronavirus. And, you know, I'm taking a swab and, you know, placing that unfortunately in a very, um, uncomfortable position in her nose. And she's coughing all over me, uh, and grabbing at my shirt because it was just so, uh, such an awful experience for her. And she ended up being positive. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's pretty alarming. It was pretty scared to be honest when I, when I, when I learned that, uh, cause I knew that there was a re- reasonable chance that, I'll be, you know, I, I could get this. And I think I've kind of resigned to the fact that I'm going to get coronavirus in the next uh, couple of months. I think, again, I don't think I'm unique in that position. I think a lot of people are, but I'm just kind of resigned to that as, as in the nature of my job that I'm most likely going to get this. And That's terrifying. And so fear. what do you do as a medical professional mm-hmm. in that situation? Where are you being tested every day? Like what, what happens after no, that? It, yeah, we don't get tested. We only get tested if we have symptoms. Uh, whenever we're ruling out folks, uh, uh, we tend to, we, we, we wear personal protective equipment, PPE, which in theory should decrease the risk of uh, transmission to us. But we, uh, we do have, you know, uh, testing available at Stanford, uh, so I can get tested if I have symptoms. Um, and then I go into immediate quarantine until those test results are back. But, uh, they've done a much better job of getting testing done, uh, much quicker for frontline healthcare workers. So these tend these tests now come back in less than 24 hours, which is, which is very helpful. Um, but it, it can be quite nerve wracking in that, in that time waiting for the, for the answer. 
What are your, you know, predictions for the future as, you know, from your profession? I mean, of course, there's a lot of people opining on, on Twitter from tech and uh, we're mm-hmm. a very, we're a very vocal group. I count myself, I count myself amongst one <laughs> yeah. of them, but, but you're an yeah. actual, you know, doctor, like what are three <laughs> bold predictions you have over the next year for society, economics, anything? Yeah, I think that uh, for me, I think that healthcare is forever changed um, uh, as of uh, six weeks ago. And I think it's uh, just phenomenal to even, even fathom saying that statement. But uh, I think for one, uh, virtual health is, is here to stay. You know, uh, before I started, um, you know, I'm, uh, one of my roles is director of digital health here at Stanford. And uh, it was nearly impossible to get folks to start using uh, video visits and virtual health uh, console platforms to be able to see patients, both from providers who are just kind of rooted in their old ways and also from patients who just didn't feel like they wanted to use this technology or would rather drive four hours to see us at Stanford. And now you have this re- very unique alignment of, of patients, providers, and now even payers because CMS has actually allowed for uh, reimbursement for video visits and virtual health. Uh, and and we've seen uh, virtual health has flourished here at Stanford. And so now more than 80% of our visits here at Stanford now are all, are all virtual, which is incredible, e- even in oncology. Uh, so I think it's, it's here to stay. It's actually, I think in, in a lot of ways, it's a good thing for, uh, for our access to patients uh, to break down geographic barriers, which I think is very, very important. Uh, so I think that's one big thing that we'll see uh, forever change is, is the rise of digital health and telemedicine in, uh, in, in, in the way that we deliver care. Uh, two is that uh, I think, in, at least in the healthcare space, we're probably going to see a shift away from hospital-based care and more towards home-based care. Uh, I think that this has just happened to shed light on why being in the hospital is probably not the greatest place for people. And so I think that you're going to see a lot more, you know, home infusions of certain treatments, a lot of home therapy, a lot of, you know, uh, phlebotomy uh, to actually do lab draws at your home as opposed to coming into the hospital. Uh, I think this will change a lot of, of what we think actually needs to be done at the hospital uh, versus uh, done at home or, or in, a, in a mobile fashion. And again, three is just uh, I would like to think that our response to these epidemics are going to change dramatically. And I think that digital health is going to be a huge part of that. I think that, um, you know, if you look at other countries' response and all the countries that have done well in terms of combating this epidemic, they've all had digital health as a huge uh, component of their response to the epidemic. So if you look at, um, if you look at South Korea, for instance, using cell phone data to do, uh, uh, contact tracing, uh, for patients. If you look at even, you know, Russia was using, you know, artificial intelligence and facial recognition to enforce the quarantine using drones. <laughs> Not saying that we should do that necessarily, but they're just, you know, using technology. If you look at China using, uh, AI to actually, uh, diagnose COVID through chest CTs. Uh, without even tests in some areas, they would get a chest CT and be able to use that radiologic information to make a, an inference of whether this patient actually has coronavirus or not. So these are all methods that uh, other countries were using that we were just completely uh, uh, just you know lagging behind in the United States. So I think that we'll, we'll start to see a lot of this done in the United States. I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation between healthcare and tech in the next uh, uh, several years in terms of where the public stands on data privacy. Um, I think, you know, how much information are we willing to let go to stave off epidemics like this? Um, you know, you talked about in, in, in Asia, you know, using WeChat as a way to do contract tracing. Like, 
are we going to allow Facebook or whoever uh, to use our personal information to find out, you know, where this epidemic is going in the future? Um, we don't know. You know, we don't know the answers to that. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of ethical issues around this. But uh, I think that, you know, those are at least three things I can think of off the top of my head um, uh, in terms of healthcare and in terms of economy and all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll leave it to those pundits because that's not my forte. But, you know, I, I do, I don't see this going away anytime soon, in my opinion. Again, this is my own personal opinion. And, and uh, uh, I don't want anyone to act on this in any way, but I personally see this going on for quite some time. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think, you know, face mask and, and masking may be a, a new part of our culture as well. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where, you know, where this all goes, but I, I don't think we, we know for sure, but I think the repercussions will be, uh, hard and long for, for forever to come now. Yeah. The economy is just getting crushed right now and including in yeah. startup land, um, Mm-hmm. You know, I my hope is that, uh, and so everybody is is saying that the the implications are going to be long term, and they obviously they they have to be by definition mm-hmm. at this point. So many millions of people right. are out of work, um, but you know, I I hope that there is. I hope one thing that comes out of this is faster innovation in healthcare, and so now it's become yeah. the top priority of the world. And you have people like Bill Gates, et cetera, working on a vaccine. Yeah. My hope is that this accelerates um, some much needed medical technology, but let's see yeah no i 100 percent agree i think you know it's actually been humbling just to see what biology and science can do i mean i've never seen the entire world pause like it is pausing right now like if there only been a few like this in the course of human history that has caused and just to know that this is a small invisible uh organism that's incredibly successful in the way that it replicates is able to do this it just you know causes us to realize that uh you know, that this, you know, either bioterrorism or just even a virus in itself, like a, pand- a viral pandemic, is probably one of the, the greatest existential threats to the human race. And so uh, I think there will be a lot of that, uh, uh, renowned, you know, renewed emphasis uh, in the biosciences, which I think is, you know, great for, for those of us in healthcare and for those of us who think that science should be leading the way. Well, we appreciate your time today. When I say we, I mean me, because I don't have a co-host <laughs> for this podcast, but um, this was great. Really useful for our audience. Thanks for taking the time on on a Saturday when you could be doing when you could be saving lives. Well, <laughs> well you thanks are so much, right. Daniela. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Daniela. This is great, and it's uh, a great opportunity to do this. But also, thank you for uh, doing a podcast like this, and also for all your writing. I think a lot of us are uh, really need that these days, especially the satire that you're writing about. Uh, is, is a nice needed uh, refresher from everyday life. So, I, th- I think you. Uh, you do it well. Uh, I think journalism is more important now than ever has been in the history of United States history. And, uh, and people like yourself who are just great writers and great thinkers are really instrumental to our entire democracy. So we really appreciate what you're doing. Hey, thank you so much. Much, much needed, uh, you know, in the midst of taking care of kids and all of that, you don't even, that, it's hard to, it's hard to give each other compliments these days. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I am really thankful to have, People like Smith at the at the front lines helping us with this, you know, unprecedented situation. I, I keep using those words, but really is. I just cannot think of anything else to describe it. And you know, that too, the the amount of risk that you know healthcare workers put themselves, you know, basically in duress every single day right now, and the potential to catch the virus and put their family and friends at risk. It's it's pretty admirable and, you know, really gives me 
admiration for, you know, any healthcare professional, anyone working in a hospital, anyone on the front lines trying to help us get through this thing. Um, in a, in a future episode, I am actually going to interview a doctor from Massachusetts general who is seeing some very different things than some of this seeing at Stanford. So thank you again for supporting. Please follow me on Twitter. If you like the podcast, I'm at subs one S U B E S zero one. And I really, really appreciate you listening to the first couple episodes of this, uh, the show.